BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. It's Josh Hammer. So lot going on right now, obviously. We got Mike Pence out in Iowa announcing his presidential candidacy. Gotta be honest with you guys, that thing almost put me to sleep. I have literally never seen a purer distillation of Boomer Khan zombie Reaganism perhaps in my entire life than that speech. I mean, replete with the reference to the 1980 Reagan revolution, living the American dream, blah, blah, blah. I found, look, if you're the kind of person who gets up in the morning and that is your political entertainment, that is the kind of political candidate that you aspire to support, then good for you. I can't say I relate to that in the slightest. Whatever. We will see what Mike Pence does. I don't think he really has much of a chance in this primary, but we're actually not going to talk to you about any of that today because a very interesting event happened on Tuesday of this week on June 6th on D-Day, the anniversary of D-Day that Incredibly courageous and perpetually awe-inspiring allied invasion of the beach of Normandy, that just remarkable amphibious landing, Omaha Beach. Anyone who has seen Saving Private Ryan knows how that goes. And we, of course, continue to honor the men who served, some of whom are, are still alive today, though they are, of course, very, very old who served there at Normandy and, you know, God bless you and thank you for your service, of course. But something else of a much smaller and less important stature, but nonetheless interesting to me, at least, and hopefully interesting to you, happened on Tuesday, June 6th. And it comes from the world of sports. So, you know, look, I'll be be a little open with you guys. I mean, you know, before I kind of got into the whole political arena, before I decided to go to law school, before any of that, I was and and I remain a huge sports fan. It continues to be one of my foremost passions really in life. I mean, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was in high school. I mean, when I was in high school, my dream job, to be honest with you, was I think being general manager of a major league baseball team. And then I remember in in college, I ended up interning for the U.S. Tennis Association. And I actually worked on site in Flushing Meadows in Queens during the 2009 U.S. Open. I, I, I recall actually uh, dining next to Novak Djokovic and Andy Roddick and all that stuff. And the following summer, I ended up working for IMG, the sports agency. So once upon a time, this was really kind of my dream was to, was to go into that space full time. And I remember when I worked for IMG, I wrote this lengthy paper because I was actually getting college credit because the internship was unpaid. I wrote this very lengthy paper on the history of athletic endorsement contracts, which really kind of starts with the late great golfer, Arnold Palmer, a.k.a. Arnie, who really kind of transformed the entire industry of athletic endorsements. And he he really kind of pioneered it, honestly. I mean, he he was really kind of the first guy out there. I remember kind of talking on the phone with Mark Steinberg, the IMG agent who was, and if I had to take a guess, probably still is the agent for Tiger Woods, one of the greatest golfers of all time. But anyway, sports has really long been a passion of mine, golf in particular, perhaps, especially now that I live in Florida and the weather is actually conducive to year-round golf. 
once again, golf has become an interest of mine. So what happened on Tuesday of this week? Well, the PGA Tour and Live Golf decided to merge. So take a step back for a minute, for those of you who perhaps don't follow this thing quite as closely as I do. So the PGA Tour, for most of my life and most of all of y'all's life, has been the sole and exclusive professional organization for golf. So the PGA Tour was founded roughly a century ago in the 1920s. It eventually had a had a legal split from the PGA itself, which exists today as a, as a separate entity, the Professional Golfers Association of America. But the PGA Tour is the actual professional golf tour. And of course, there are various similar tours. There's a senior PGA Tour, the European PGA Tour, but the PGA Tour really is the flagship. And like most professional sports leagues in the United States, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, NHL, and so forth and so forth, the PGA Tour had an effective, a de facto, if not actual, monopoly when it comes to professional golf. That all changed over the past few years. So in 2021, it was announced that a new golf league would be forming called Live Golf. Their first professional season was last year in 2022. Live Golf is very interesting. Live Golf is exclusively financed by the Public Investment Fund, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. The CEO of Live Golf is Greg Norman, one of the most iconic American golfers, nicknamed the Great White Shark. You know, anyone who kind of grew up watching golf knows exactly who Greg Norman is. He's got that wonderful Aussie accent, very outspoken, charismatic guy. He won two British Opens, finished in the top five of many other tournaments. Probably should have won more majors than he did, to be honest with you. Really a man of great talent. And he was kind of the public-facing spokesman of Live Golf. And Live Golf was a direct, unambiguous, inescapable challenge to the monopoly status of the PGA Tour. And some high-profile players, because Live began to operate as an invite-only golf league, it was invite-only. You couldn't just get on by merit. You couldn't get on due to the success of your own scores, of your own skill. I mean, to be clear, if you were at a certain level, you probably got an invite, but the way it worked was fundamentally different than the way that the PGA Tour, for example, works, where you have all the amateur qualifiers for various tournaments, things like that. So it was an invite-only golf league, and you know, the, many high-profile players did take the plunge. So the fact that this was backed by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, as you can imagine, if you know anything at all about that particularly oil-rich country, you know that they have a lot of money. And they were able to flash that money pretty ostentatiously. In the world of live golf, the numbers they were offering to the golfers from the PGA Tour that they did invite were pretty insane. The overall prize fund for live was $405 million. Tiger Woods was allegedly offered close to a billion dollars. That's right, a billion dollars. Tiger Woods was allegedly offered to migrate to live golf full time. And again, some major names in golf did take them up on that offer. So Phil Mickelson decided to go to live golf. Brooks Kepka, one of the great up and rising stars in golf, decided to go to live golf. Dustin Johnson went to live golf and on and on and on. So Live Golf had its first season last year, and among the things they did was they totally changed the format. So the PGA Tour has four 
Standard 18 hole rounds, 72 holes. Therefore, four times 18 gets you 72. That's how many holes are in a PGA Tour tournament. There is a cut after two rounds. So 50% of the field roughly gets cut heading into the weekend because the tournament starts on Thursday, ends on Sunday. Individual sport, not a team sport. You have to wear pants. No shorts are allowed. And, you know, admittedly, as a golf fan, the PGA Tour kind of took on sort of a stuffy vibe. Right. I mean, it definitely took on some of a country club esque vibe for spectators, thereby making it perhaps a little less easily accessible for those who were not kind of raised just watching golf, appreciating golf, actually playing golf or anything like that. So Liv basically decided to take a sledgehammer to a lot of that. It was ended up being kind of a team style format. It was a 54 hole, not 72 hole tournament that's actually what the live stands for if you look at the roman numerals for liv it's 54 which is different than 72 of course and they made a lot of other changes as well so the players were allowed to wear shorts which sounds like it's kind of a you know not particularly important kind of thing but in reality it does kind of have kind of the effect of kind of just loosening up the game of just kind of loosening up the entire experience. They they would play live music at these events. One of my great regrets, actually, is that I was unable to make it to the Live Golf Tournament that was here in South Florida last October. I was actually out of town, if I recall. I was actually up in Boston that weekend for a Harvard Law School symposium. But uh, in any event, um, it looks like a hell of a good time with like the live music playing. The whole thing kind of takes on the ambience of something of a party. And there's no cut. The field does not have very just three straightforward rounds, team play, really kind of just good stuff. So a few other things to note here. One is the PGA Tour, when Live Golf started, decided that it would issue suspensions or bans for players who ultimately made the plunge over to live. They basically said that if you do this, then you can't come back. And the commissioner of the PGA Tour even went so far, this is Jay Moynihan, he's the PGA Tour commissioner, he even went so far as to try to take the moral high ground here and kind of invoke the horrific memory of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which we know that some Saudi nationals were involved with, and to say that anyone who goes is taking Saudi blood money, that this is a disgrace to 9-11, blah, blah, blah. To make matters even a little more politically nuanced and complicated, numerous, multiple live golf events last year in their inaugural 2022 season were actually held at Trump-affiliated golf courses. In fact, there was even one at Trump National Bedminster, that is Trump's estate in Bedminster, New Jersey, where he is frequently found. So numerous events, including the one here in Miami, which was at Trump Doral, numerous of them of the events last year were held on Trump-affiliated properties, which is interesting, in, at least insofar as, if you recall the, from the Trump presidency, Trump actually had a very positive and cozy relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. In fact, that was his very first overseas stop back in May of 2017, was in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. He was basically trying to affirm that very strategically important alliance when it comes to anti-Iranian containment and things of that nature in the middle, in the Middle East. And, you know, and it's probably a safe bet that without that groundwork that Trump had laid when it comes to shoring up the U.S.-Saudi relationship, 
that the Abraham Accords themselves between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco probably would not have happened. Obviously, the Saudis have not themselves formally made peace yet with Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu desperately wants that, and they're currently talking about it behind closed doors. Tony Blinken of the Biden administration, who you know is not exactly the best at his job, to put it mildly, but he's over in Saudi Arabia right now trying to kind of move that ball forward. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But without the Saudis' tacit approval, the point is the Emiratis, Bahrainis, and Moroccans never would have made that peace with Israel. And I think a lot of credit goes to the Saudis and really the Trump administration for having firmed up that relationship. So the fact that Live Golf has had such a cozy relationship with a very polarizing figure, that being the former president, Donald Trump, is definitely an interesting variable to throw into the mix here. And then furthermore, Greg Norman, of course, the public facing CEO of Live Golf, who we briefly discussed earlier, is himself an outspoken conservative. So it's very interesting. You had kind of this conservative Saudi flair to live. The PGA Tour is tossing around the imagery, the horrific imagery of 9-11, trying to shame these players from going to this flashy, high-paying new tour with a Saudi bend to it, talking about suspensions, we're not going to let you back if you make the plunge, all this, all that, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. And this started to escalate, and there ended up being competing antitrust lawsuits between Live Golf and the PGA Tour. Pretty nasty stuff. Pretty nasty stuff. Now, all of that changed on Tuesday when the PGA Tour and Live Golf, out of nowhere, announced that they would merge. Really shocking. I mean, these guys have been going at it. Greg Norman has been making the rounds on behalf of Live Golf talking about the PGA Tour's illicit and perhaps even illegally obtained monopoly. PGA Tour has been talking about the Saudi blood money, stuff like that. I mean, these guys really did not like each other. So this merger seems like it came basically out of nowhere. And in the immediate aftermath of it, it's a little difficult to know exactly what came from it. So here's my basic take as a golf fan, as a golfer myself, to an extent, always trying to get better, of course. And obviously, as someone who pays attention to the geopolitical currents and is looking at this from an American perspective and interested in kind of the Saudi element here as well. So look, from a golf fan perspective, this is probably good. This is probably good. You have these two tours that are finally going to be merged together as one again. And what that means in concrete terms is that when you get into next season, because the rest of the 2023 season will play out according to the way it was, this is not going to take effect until next year. But starting then, assuming the merger goes through, which to be clear is, is an assumption. I mean, we will see what happens from a DOJ antitrust perspective. The Biden administration, especially under Jonathan Cantor, who is the DOJ Department of Justice Assistant Attorney General, when it comes to antitrust matters, tends to be a little more hands-on. So we'll see. Although hard to kind of just intuit what the antitrust issue would be, given that the PGA Tour was effectively a monopoly as recently as two years ago before Liv started. So it's a little hard to kind of envision what the possible antitrust issues may be. But, you know, maybe Jonathan Cantor could find some reason to gum up the works, so to speak. But OK, next year, assuming this thing goes through, assuming the antitrust lawsuits ultimately either fail, are not brought or are mooted, 
we're going to get a very nice field again of players where everyone's going to be competing against each other. So Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, Lee Westwood, all the various guys, Sergio Garcia, of course. I mean, all the live golf guys will be once again competing against all the PGA Tour folks. And that's good. That That is fundamentally good from a golf fan's perspective. The more interesting questions that I have are, one, what happens to all of the innovative changes to the golf tournament structure that Live Golf has introduced? I mean, you assume that because the PGA Tours existed for so much longer that maybe Live will just fold into PGA Tour again. We'll go back to the 72 holes. It's the cut. The players wear the pants. There's no kind of like techno party rave feel to the golf tournament events. No no music. No, no golfers trying to like raise the roof and get and get the audience clapping and cheering happy Gilmore style. I, I mean, that's possible. I think that would be unfortunate, though. You know, one of my big regrets, again, is that I haven't made it to a live golf tournament. because It's supposed to be a hell of a lot of fun. And to the extent that they were able to kind of change the public's perception of the game of golf and introduced a much needed reinvigoration of kind of zest and youthful energy and spirit into it. It would really be unfortunate if that were to all go away. So right now, we we have very little in the way of details as to what this merger exactly is going to look like. So I, for one, am going to be paying very, very, very close attention to that. What we do know is that the current PGA Tour commissioner, the aforementioned Jay Moynihan, who the guy who went out on his limb to kind of play the Saudi card, blood money, blah, blah, blah. He will be the CEO of the new entity and the governor of the Saudi Public Investment Fund, Yasir Al-Rimayan, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, will be the chairman. So they're basically going to do a CEO-chairman split. Allegedly, the PGA Tour is going to appoint the majority of the board. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But one thing that we immediately know is that these competing antitrust lawsuits from, the, from Live Golf and the PGA Tour against each other are going to be mooted. They will go away with the only possible antitrust action being from the Biden Department of Justice if they decide to go that route, which as of this recording remains to be determined. Again, I don't think they have much of a strong case. We'll see if they decide to bring it anyway, which they might out of some sort of kind of bizarre vindictiveness, anti-Saudi sentiment or so forth. And that kind of takes us to my final thought on this matter, which is the elephant in the room, which is the Saudi Arabia angle here. Saudi Arabia is a complicated country. We discussed a little bit on this show in the past. It is undeniable that a majority, an outright majority, if I recall, of the 9-11 bombers were Saudi nationals, the old Saudi regime, the old House of Saud leadership had a very thorny problem when it came to the relationship with funding Salafism, Wahhabism, and various extremist Islamist clerics, schools of Islamic thought, madrasas, and so forth all around the world. That really did start to change fairly drastically when Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince, came into de facto power there in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He has done a lot. He has announced Vision 2030, which is an attempt to basically change the Saudi economy, for lack of a better term, to take it away from its almost singular reliance upon the oil and natural gas industry. 
He has had any number of basic humanitarian reforms. Women can drive. Believe it or not, they couldn't under the previous leadership. Things like that. He has invested in cities like Jeddah, which is a Saudi city right on the Red Sea, which perhaps the Saudi government intends to make kind of a Dubai-esque place for Western tourism. They have all sorts of other plans there in the desert to make it kind of a more Western-friendly place. I'm not going to say Western-oriented because this is still a very traditional Islamic society, of course, even more traditional than, than the UAE and some other Sunni countries there in the Gulf. So again, under the Trump administration, the Saudis looked like they were very, very, very good actors when it came to realist, hard-headed geopolitics with the United States and our relations there. I'm not going to get into the Jamal Khashoggi assassination, the hacksawing in the consulate in Istanbul. That's, that, that's a whole nother conversation. Again, uh, some of the human rights concerns continue. Jamal Khashoggi, that's a very, very, very complicated issue. Suffice to say, this idea that he was just this noble journalist is, is grossly overstated. But again, beyond the confines of this particular conversation, he did not deserve to die for whatever sins he had, suffice it to say. I hope that that is clear. But whatever human rights issues kind of lingered, the Saudis were America-oriented when it came to geopolitical relations on the global stage. Again, they, behind the scenes, helped shepherd the Abraham Accords deals. I have it on very good authority from friends who worked at the highest levels of the Trump administration that if Trump had won in 2020, Saudi Arabia would have formally joined the Abraham Accords in the first six months of Trump's second term two years ago in the year 2021. Saudi has been in a state of war for years now against Iranian-backed Houthi rebels who are horrific Islamist actors there in uh, in Yemen on, on the southern portion of the Arabian Peninsula. Do not buy the media spin that this is Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. That's ridiculous. The Houthi rebels whose slogan is like praise Allah, praise Islam, death to the Jews, death to the infidels. I mean, that's literally the slogan of the rebel Iranian-backed group that the Saudis have been at war with for years. The Houthis' rockets have made it all the way to the UAE, deep into the heart of Saudi. So do not believe the spin on that particular issue. But the Biden administration, again, because the Biden administration has been a real kind of continuance of Obama-era foreign policy, has tried and tried again to further the Obama vision of a United States in the Middle East that is more closely oriented with the Iranian regime and indeed the Sunni-backed Muslim Brotherhood itself, and away from America's traditional allies in the region, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, all countries that have banned the Muslim Brotherhood and at least are Iran skeptical. Now, it's interesting that the Saudis have responded in kind to the Biden administration. So Joe Biden in 2020 ran, he called Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. He called him a pariah on the global stage because of the Jamal Khashoggi affair. And he's just been very anti-Saudi in his rhetoric. And the Saudis have responded in kind. They have made any number of decisions with respect to OPEC, with the oil cartel, with respect to cutting oil to boost consumer prices without paying heed to American consumer concerns. Most recently, they reformalized relations with the Iranian regime. That caught a lot of people, including yours truly, off guard. And they even did so under the auspices of Chinese diplomacy. So China kind of cutting into America's historical sphere of diplomatic influence there in the region. 
So the Saudis have really responded in kind. And that cannot be ignored when you look at what is happening here with the PGA Tour live golf situation. Now, a lot of people, uh, again, are kind of clutching their pearls saying, oh my God, the PGA Tour is selling out. You know, David French, the useless controlled opposition right liberal hack who now calls himself a columnist at the New York Times. He had some absolutely obtuse tweet on Tuesday, shortly after the news this merger was announced, saying, I'm so happy I'm not a golf fan right now. What a morally compromised situation. I mean, what an absolute neocon dolt. I'm sorry, I, but there's just no other way to say it. Not every situation is a means to claim a moral high ground. Not everything is black versus white. Not everything is good versus evil. Not everything is freedom versus authoritarianism, totalitarianism, whatever. Sometimes, as the case may be here, David French and others clutching their pearls when it comes to the PGA Tour and Live Golf, sometimes it's actually just about the game of golf. And again, from a fan's perspective, I am pretty happy about that. I do hope that the Biden administration acts really to follow Jay Moynihan's lead and to try to get relations with Saudi Arabia to a working state again. That is an extremely important alliance, especially as Iran races ever closer to a nuclear weapon. So this riff between American-backed golf and the Saudi-backed Live Golf League has come to an end. Again, many of us are paying very close attention to what that means for concrete terms as far as what the game of golf literally looks like next year. And many of the salutary changes to the game that Live Golf has shepherded in, I for one hope that a lot of those changes will stay. But it would be very nice. Again, the Biden administration followed the PGA Tour's lead on this one and tried to shore up relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia rather than just continue to alienate and isolate them at a time when really their alliance for hard-headed national interest-oriented reasons, obviously not liberal democracy-related reasons, but at a time when their hard-headed realpolitik alliance is needed more than ever. So exciting times to be a golf fan, no doubt about that. And we will see. We will see. As always, we look forward to your feedback. So please go ahead and leave us that review on the podcast. If you have not already done so, give us your comment in that comment section. We promise we do read them. We actually take them quite seriously, if I can say that. And we once again hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Slightly different change of pace for us. So for all the golf fans out there, hope in particular you enjoyed this one. We'll be back with you with a return to more normal programming soon. So I'm Josh Hammer, and we'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) 
Wow. She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.